0: We shall turn now to the consideration of the Word of God, turning particularly to the book of the Revelation, chapter 21. And uh, we may read from the beginning of the chapter just now. Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and so on. John continues to open up the visions that he was granted of the great work of the glorified Redeemer. And as he does again and again, he brings us back to the throne that has been so focused upon in the previous chapter. We read in verse five of this chapter 21, and he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end. John brings us back to the throne. Uh, Throughout the book of the Revelation, there are more references to God's throne than any other book in the Bible. The great focus throughout the book is on the throne. We might tend to focus much upon events in this world, the material world, and forget that the one who was ruling and reigning never leaves his throne. And here as we're coming to the conclusion, as it were, of history, the history of this world, we are still focused upon the throne. The throne has not been vacated, no matter what opposition has been mounted against it, no matter how bitter the enemies and how strong and powerful, no matter what they have endeavored to do by way of dethroning the great king of Zion, and destroying his uh, church and his witness, here we're coming to the end of the book, and the throne is still there, and it is still occupied. The one who was speaking from the throne at the very beginning of the book is still enthroned as we come to the end of it. And he who had been telling John to write at the beginning of the book, tells him to write again. Write, for these words are true and faithful. And then he said, it is done. Because he is in control, it is done. Everything that he purposed from eternity past, every particle of his decree is perfectly executed from that throne. It is done. I am Alpha, and I am Omega. I am the beginning, and I am the end. Four times throughout the book we have the glorified Redeemer claiming I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega. Twice also, he says, in addition, I am the first, and I am the last. There will be no one after me. I conclude all things, and I reign supremely to the very end. Now, going back to the previous chapter, just to remind us of what takes place Because this throne exists, last Lord's Day we considered something of the great white throne and the judgment. And this throne is the throne from which the eternal destiny of every single man, woman, boy and girl that ever lived. The great assembly, we looked at it last Lord's Day, the greatest assembly of the human race ever to be. There never will be a greater or larger assembly. The sea giving up its dead, death and hell delivering up the dead that were in them serving the purposes of God. What we find is, that the one on the throne passes judgment on every last one. Your judgment, my judgment, will be from this throne. And we are told by the one who is appointed to be the judge exactly what he's going to do. We noted the great white throne of eternal, immutable justice, and every man judged out of the things that were written in those books. And how will the judge, how will he do just judgment? He himself tells us, while he was in this world, you go back with me, this is one of the places where the Savior speaks of it, and Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. This isn't one of the disciples speaking. This isn't a spokesman for the Savior. This is himself, the one to whom all judgment has been committed. Listen to what he says as recorded by Matthew. Verse 36 of Matthew 12. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. This is what the Savior says regarding his manner of judging and how detailed that judgment shall be. Every idle word, thoughtless word, if we are to be judged for thoughtless words how shall we judged for the words spoken deliberately and thoughtfully I say unto you this is how I am going to judge from the great white throne and he is telling his disciples telling the people that Eh, They shall give an account thereof. Now you might think, well, an idle word, I didn't think much about it. I can't even remember it. But the judge says, I am going to judge to that extent. And every idle word, I will expect you to account for it. How solemn and searching that is. We use words, carelessly, thoughtlessly, without thinking just what I've said. I'm going to have to account, and Jesus tells me on the day of his judgment, he's going to require me to account for it. Now, later on in the same gospel, in the chapter 25, the judge again speaks. And he tells us what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate, he shall separate them one from another. As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left, then shall the king say unto them on the right hand, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And you can read then what the Savior here says he will require accountability for and what he will judge for Even, as he says, in another occasion, a cup of cold water given in his name will have its reward. Here he says, "Eh, I was hungered, and you gave me meat, I was thirsty, you gave me drink, I was a stranger, you took me in, and so on. And they are amazed to whom the Savior says this, that they should actually have done this. But the Savior says, the king shall answer, verse 40, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. The way you treat my brethren is the way you've treated me. And I will require it on the Day of Judgment. If you've simply visited one of my brethren in sickness, if you've clothed one of my brethren who was naked, you did it unto me, so close and so intimate as my relationship with my people. That the way you treat them is the way you treat me. Then again, verse 41, Then shall he say also unto them in the left hand, Depart, because their attitude was the opposite. And you will see the great contrast. It couldn't be clearer. In verse 31, the king shall say unto them on his right hand, Come. Verse 41, Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart. Those are the two sentences. And everyone inside these walls today will hear one or the other. You and I. We will hear either come or we will hear depart. There'll be no in between. It'll be one or the other. Come or depart. Because he is going to, from the throne, separate. What a solemn, solemn separation. And those who perhaps were united together in this world in various ways may well then be separated. You young people, unconverted and in your sins, this separation is going to be for eternity. You go over with me to that probably well-known portion in Luke chapter 16, where we have their mention of a rich man and a beggar. And they both died. And they both passed from this scene of time and they left behind their earthly lot. Now we read... Of the rich man that he was buried, we read of Lazarus the beggar that he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. What happens then when they've finished their earthly course? What is their experience? It is the same that is confirmed in what we read in the closing chapters of revelation it is their final destiny we may move around in this life and in this world this earthly scene but our destinies will be forever sealed whenever we come to the judgment seat of Christ now go with me to Luke chapter 16 And listen to the voice of both Abraham and of the rich man. Listen to the voices. Here is the rich man in verse 24. He cried and said, Father Abraham, he cried because he's in an agony. And who is he crying to? Father Abraham, Father Abraham, I am one of your children. I am one of your descendants. I always claimed you as my father. I am a child of the covenant community with all the promises of God that he made to Abraham. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now I tell you, his cry and his prayer is real and sincere, but it is a display of great ignorance. The psalmist David sinned greatly against God, but he asked God for mercy. He didn't go to Abraham. He went directly to God. But in his folly and in his ignorance, because his heart in eternity is unchanged, he turns to Abraham. Don't you recognize me? I am your son. Have mercy on me. Do something for me. Send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. Young men, listen. But Abraham said, son. Abraham said, son. Now, the context in which those words are found are solemn. Because Abraham says in verse 26, And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Here is a man who's lost and he is tormented because part of the reason for his torment is he can see his father Abraham and he can see Lazarus in the bosom of his father Abraham. Now, as we consider the closing chapters of Revelation, we are told of the bride of Christ, of the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down from God, who its occupants are. But we're told without. There are those who are outside of it, separated. You and I have to see here what the Savior is saying. Here is a lost soul. For him there is no mercy. For him there is no forgiveness. There is no justification. There is no salvation forever. But he can see his father Abraham. He's separated from him. There is no bridge to cross to bring Abraham or even the beggar Lazarus to where he is, eternally separated. And because of what the rich man sees, he calls on his father Abraham, do something for me. Don't you care about me, your child? Don't you Have a concern for me being tormented here. Do something for me. He could see Abraham. And if he could see Abraham, he could see Moses. And he could see others. What an eternity it must be. For a son from a Christian home, a son brought up under the gospel, a son lost and undone, seeing his father, seeing his mother in the bliss of eternal glory, And cry out, Father, do something for this son. Surely you love me. Surely you cared for me. Surely you prayed for me. Can you forsake me now? And the father, listen, listen to your father's voice, young man. Can you hear it? Abraham, son. Son. He speaks of the relationship. Son. Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. You received instruction. You received warnings. You received blessing heaped upon blessing. What did you do with it? Son, Son, I can do nothing now. You have sealed your destiny forever. You, my dear young man, read those words and lay them to heart, for they are solemn. But coming back to the revelation where we have the judgment taking place, and it is concluded. And we are told in verse 15 of chapter 20, whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus refers to that place as being the place prepared for the devil and his angels. It is a place prepared. God has prepared it he has ensured that it is suitable, perfectly suitable, as the place where the ungodly will dwell with the devils for eternity. But here when we come to chapter 1, we come to a most contrasting and a most beautiful scene we come to see the most beautiful scene the universe can possibly ever entertain. I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth. In the previous chapter, we're told, Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. They're gone. They fled away. And all now that's in view is the throne and the masses of humanity before the throne. But then John says, there's a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And here is an introduction to an amazing sight. A new heaven and a new earth. And there was no more sea. Now immediately when we read these words, there were no more there was no more sea. Means in reality there was no more separation. No more separation. Here we are brought to a place of perfect unity and perfect harmony. No more sea. But then when we consider what has previously been told us of what came out of the sea on occasions, then it adds to our understanding of the grandeur of the occasion. You go back to chapter 13. John says, verse 1, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. But there will be no more sea. There will be no more beasts rising out of the sea, coming up to serve Satan and his purposes, to oppose the church of Christ, to persecute his saints, That is all past. The judgment has taken place. The dragon has been taken. He's been cast into the lake of fire with a beast and the false prophet. And all the ungodly have been separated as the tares from from the wheat, as the goats from the sheep. And they've been cast into that company, into the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. And these are symbols. What must the reality be? The judgment of God is real. And his eternal wrath will be real. But then John says, he saw something else. Verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now you connect that with what John tells us, the angel, one of the angels that had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues, came to John, verse 9, at the end of it, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now remember what... And it is very probably the same angel uh, that carried John away previously in the chapter 17. One of the angels, verse 1 of chapter 17, which had the seven vials, talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. For there be no waters for the whore to sit on now. Her doom is sealed forever, but with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and so on. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. What does John say? The angel that had the seven, one of the angels that had the seven last plagues came and first of all, he took me to the wilderness. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. When he comes, the uh, the angel, Uh, one of these angels comes. The second time to John, he carried him away in the spirit, but not into the wilderness, but to a very high mountain. On the first occasion, he carries him to see a great city. On the second occasion, he brings him to see a great city. On the first occasion, he brings him to see a harlot woman identified as that great city. The second occasion, it is the Lamb's wife that is shown here as the great city. Now, in the uh, chapter 18, you have the lament of the merchants and the great men and the mighty men because Babylon, the great city, has fallen. Babylon and Jerusalem are contrasted. Babylon falls. There's going to be no new Babylon. But here is the lament. Verse, uh, for example, chapter 18. Verse 18, they cried when (coughs) they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? There's no city like this great city. How can it be? How can it possibly fall? How is it possible it can be destroyed? There is no city in the world like it. Alas, alas, verse 19, that great city. They are crying because... The mighty city in verse 10 of chapter 18 has fallen and come into judgment in such a short time so suddenly how can it be? Men underestimate the power of God and the power of a judging God. The power of his judgments. In one hour it's all gone. It's all destroyed. The mighty power of God. Now When we come to Revelation 21, John says the judgment is passed. One of the angels comes and says, Come, hither I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Go back to verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now what a scene ordinarily. Women particularly love to attend weddings. And uh, every minister knows when he conducts a marriage and when he stands and waits for the signal, for the bride and her father to come into the building and he asked the congregation to arise to receive the bride. Heads are turning to see how she looks, to see how well she's been prepared. And you hear the whispers, isn't she beautiful? Isn't she lovely? And then when she comes to stand beside her husband he looks into her eyes maybe whispers you are beautiful you are lovely. Here is the most magnificent display of beauty that can ever ever be beholden. Here is a city prepared as a bride for her husband. Fitted and ready to be embraced by him. And John is taken by the angel. I want to show you something. I want to show you something that Christ has been waiting for. I want to show thee the bride. I want you to look at Christ's bride. I want you to look at the one that he surrendered his very life to procure. The one that he came into this world to win to his bosom. The one that his heart has longed and yearned for. The one that he humbled himself In order to redeem, you go over to the epistle that Paul writes to the Ephesians. And there you have in chapter 5, Paul speaking of the relationship between husbands and wives. That husbands are to love their wives even as Christ loved the church. And I tell you, that will keep every husband humble. That will keep him searching his soul as to his affection for his wife. But we read that husbands, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, are to love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. This is the church, this is the bride. That he gave everything he was and everything he had, he gave it for her. Why? Verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word. What has prepared this bright, the cleansing power, the sanctifying power of God's Word, that he might cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Here's the great wedding day. Here is the great day that Christ has had before him through all his sufferings, all his humiliation, through all the agony of Calvary, what do we read in the epistle to the Hebrews there in the chapter 12? We're told to look. The saints of God are directed to be looking unto Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith. And what do we read? We are to look to him for. Why? Why? Do we look to him particularly? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy. Oh, this is the joy of, the joyful day of Christ the judgment is passed and now his soul is full of joy for here in spite of all the opposition down through the centuries hell stirred up to destroy Christ's church to dethrone him to destroy the witness on his behalf for the joy that was set before him. He saw this bride because he is eternally God and he is omniscient. He saw what he would win. He saw with his eternal omniscience He saw the one that was worth dying for. He saw the one that it was worth bleeding for. He saw the one that he would be humiliated to win. Here John sees a sight of the Lamb's wife. And what a sight she truly is, because as Paul tells the Ephesians she has been prepared not for her own glory or not to glory in herself. That he might present it to himself. And when the bride is before him, she's exactly what he wanted. She is exactly what he desired. She fills every desire, satisfies every desire of his holy soul. He could not want her to be more glorious. He could not desire any improvement upon her. She delights him in every conceivable way. She is glorious in every way and satisfies every desire of his soul. What a day this will be for Christ. But what a day for the church presented to himself so well-pleasing. Now then... John, you see, tells us uh, something of the, describes something of the grandeur and of the beauty of the Bride of Christ, likened unto this holy city, the new Jerusalem. And one of the things that uh, we read concerning this A city there are many things that we cannot possibly expect to deal with today, but just by way of introduction, verse ten he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain to make sure to make sure John could see it all see the nothing nothing obscuring the scene. Nothing that would hide its beauty. Everything is clear. A grave and a high mountain to see it all. And he saw the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. This is not a city built by men. But this is a city prepared by God and built by God and descends from God. Man's hands are not involved in devising it or planning it or building it or constructing it. This is the doing of the Lord. That's why it is so marvelous in our eyes. My, you think of the misery to be experienced by those in the 20th chapter who are sent Away to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. And now to come to the contrasting scene, to the scene of the New Jerusalem, the bride prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What preparation has gone into this? Now, it is all summed up, the beauty, the grandeur, summed up in the words that come from the throne itself. Verse 5, he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Behold, I make, or I am in the process of making all things. Things new. Now you go back to Second Corinthians and you have the Apostles speaking of those who are new creations in Christ Jesus. New creatures or new creations in Christ Jesus. All things are passed away and all things become new. And that is part of the great process because this city is the New Jerusalem and the New Jerusalem is filled with citizens who are new creatures in Christ Jesus. For them all things have passed away and all things have become new. Therefore, they are the suitable citizens of this great city, the New Jerusalem. Now, notice how it is described, this city, verse 15. He that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. My, what a wall to be measuring. Look at how it is described. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Now normally you would be satisfied if a wall had one foundation. But this wall doesn't have one or two or five. It has 12 foundations. The most secure city. They will not be lamenting, this great city is fallen. It's fallen because it was built on poor foundation. It is 12 foundations. It is secure for all eternity. And those who are its inhabitants are equally secure for all eternity. But then it is described, verse 16, it lieth four square. And the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. Twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Now John knew the significance of such a statement and such a measurement. Because in antiquity, the cube was considered to be the symbol of uh, greatest beauty. It wasn't a circle, it was a cube. And that was considered to be symbolic, to be the most perfect shape. Now you go back to the tabernacle. And you go back to Solomon's temple. And what do we find regarding the measurements of the tabernacle and particularly the Holy of Holies when Solomon built his temple, the Holy of Holies that of course was in reality an enlargement of the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies is described in the same way. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. What then is so significant that John sees the beauty of this city, the beauty of the church, the beauty of the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, It is, in reality, all entirely the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, under Levitical law, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went once a year into the Holy of Holies. And he could not go in there without blood, nor without incense. And there was a veal. That separated between the holy of holies, between God and the Israelites. The high priest went in securing his own life and the life of the Israelites as he sprinkled the blood over the mercy seat covering the law that was accusing and condemning. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the Israelites were secured in a relationship with God because of that blood. But in the day when Christ uttered from the cross, it is finished, the veil was rent from top to bottom. And now there was access into the presence of God freely. Now, what do we see here? It's as though the whole of this city, every compartment in it, every part of it, is as the holy of holies. God and his people are perfectly united. There's no separation. There's no veil between them. What does John say? Uh, verse 3, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. God doesn't want any veal now between them and himself. He wants to be with them. He wants to enjoy them and he desires them to enjoy him. Here is the uh, ultimate relationship between God and his people. No separation. No inhibitions Nothing but perfect, hallowed, holy, eternal communion and fellowship with God. This is what John is seeing is to be the experience of those who are on the right hand when the judge separates the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the chaff. Those in his right hand are those who enter into the city and they are the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem to share in all this glory and all this beauty. Now you will see that in verse 8 we are told, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So this separation is very real. And John sees that this city is to be so pure, so much the holy of holies with God Uh, satisfied to dwell presently among his people. We read uh, verse 27, the last verse of this chapter, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written the Lamb's book of life. Now when you go back to the verse 15 of the previous chapter, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, the last verse of chapter 21, they which are written in the Lamb's book of life, are they who are the inhabitants of this city. They know what it is to enjoy the nearness of God in a way they've never experienced previously. God dwelling among his people. No veil between them. Nothing, nothing, whatever but freedom of access right into the very bosom of God. But what makes the difference as to the destinies of those who go to either the place prepared for the devil and his angels or the place that is prepared for the bride of Christ? It's where their names are written. Are their names in the book of life? That's what will matter you have all the books opened and all the sins are laid out and exposed and another book is opened which is the book of life and if the name is not in that book the eternal destiny is terrible beyond our comprehension but if the name is there then we are part of the bride of Christ to enjoy the presence of God and the bliss of which we will look further into for all eternity. And our concern this day must surely be is my name there. As I presently sit in this building what is my destiny? If nothing changes, what is my destiny? The Savior that calls me to himself again and again is going to utter one of two words to me. Come or depart. Come or depart. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy... And eternal God, we rejoice that thou hast revealed thyself as a God of infinite justice and judgment. Nothing escapes thy notice. Thou hast everything on record to be accounted for. Oh, grant us then to be solemnized, to be looking forward to the day of our accountability and to be making sure by thy grace that we shall hear those blessed words come ye blessed of my father oh forbid that any may the children think of it forbid that any would hear the words depart oh grant us then to be desiring to be sharing in the glorious day that Christ has lived for and that Christ has died for. May we desire with all our hearts to be part of that glorious occasion. Bless then thy word to us. Pardon us, receive us. For the Redeemer's sake, amen.